Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And Neil Perberg calls us the worst business podcast. And Podcast Magazine calls us, quote, the best business podcast. No matter what you call us, we are the number one real dialogue podcast for business people with a different mind. And because we're in a, a, a real dialogue podcast, one of the many things that makes us different, you will never hear an ad read in the middle of a guest conversation because uh, I can't stand it when that happens as a listener. So we're not putting you through that either. <laughs> All right. On this episode, this is an incredibly special episode. Uh, we have a person on today that is like no other person that has ever been on this podcast. You see, there is no category of technology breakthrough in the last hundred years that is more important than the cell phone. There are others, of course, that are equally important. But when you um, step back and take a look and really think about it, it is not an exaggeration to say that the mobile phone changed the trajectory of humanity, that the cell phone created a radically different future that has created and it continues to create exponential benefits for humankind. Now, we know the names of many of the legendary innovators and category creators of the modern era, back to people like Henry Ford, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, uh, Elon Musk, and, and many others. And these folks are uh, rightfully celebrated. Yet most people don't know who the father of the cell phone is. And that's Marty Cooper. And he's our guest. And I think he's one of the greatest innovators of all time. And he's about as low profile and humble as a person can be who's achieved anywhere near what he has. And I am very grateful that Marty in his 90s took the time to write his new riveting book. It's called Cutting the Cord, this, How the Cell Phone Has Transformed Humanity. Because now we have a first person account of the life and the learnings of a legendary innovator, engineer, and category creator, and frankly, American, Martin Cooper. What follows is an unedited, uninterrupted conversation with Marty. We cover everything from his definition of what technology is, to why he's irked by how the mobile companies have rolled out 5G. His thoughts on how to bridge the digital divide, something he cares deeply about, and bring the internet to everyone. How being a dreamer has served him so well. Why Marty is opt optimistic about the future and the new categories and technologies that he is currently most interested in. He also shares what he thinks of the future of energy and what it will be and um, what he thinks about smartphones today and where he thinks they are headed. Marty also tells us why he thinks nobody should be poor and the role of technology and how important it is in bringing people out of poverty. And of course, we dig into how Marty and the courageous leaders at Mo Motorola um, invented the first cell phone. Uh, and Marty tells us a story about the first ever public cell phone call made, which of course he made. And uh, it's one of my favorite stories of innovation and category creation of all time. Marty also tells us why he loves the radically different and pay special attention to what Marty thinks is the key to a long and legendary life. 
My friends at NetSuite are number one in cloud ERP. To build a legendary platform for your business, check out netsuite.com slash different today. My friends at Splunk are the leaders in bringing data to everything. And data is becoming the most important asset. So go check out Splunk at splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And my friends at Malibu Milk are the world's first whole plant organic flax milk. And man, it tastes great. It goes great in smoothies, cereal, and uh, it's fantastic. Check out MalibuMilkWithAY.com. And uh, if you're not reading our newsletter, Category Pirates, then you're not reading Category Pirates. And to remedy that situation, go to Lockhead.com and subscribe today to Category Pirates. It's sort of like the Harvard Business Review, if it was written for and by pirates. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So, Marty, I I know a lot of people, when they want to talk to you, of course, they want to talk to you about the past. And and today, more than ever, this this wonderful new book you've written, which I'm so glad you took the time to do. And, of course, I'd love to get into a lot of this with you. Uh, But I'm curious, um, is there anything on your mind? I mean, I have a thousand things to ask you, but is there anything on your mind that you'd like to start to talk about? No, I'm I'm game for uh, anything, Chris. Uh, I've got some things that are at the top of my mind only because uh, that's what I've been thinking about a lot. But uh, the digital divide with regard to education is a real uh, hot button with me. And I've been uh, working very hard on that, not having a great deal of impact. Uh, But uh, I know that uh, my viewpoints on that are uh, uh, perhaps based on um, more experience than other people. And so I uh, keep pressing ahead. Uh, um, the other topic that might be of interest uh, is to you is the uh, my views on 5G uh, as they relate to uh, the uh, digital divide, the fact that uh, uh, 5G is being hyped in lots of ways that I think are uh, verge on uh, dishonesty, or, uh, and that may be too strong a word, but uh, marketing hype would be a better word. So, uh, but I'm your servant. I'm anything that you think would be fun to talk about. Uh, I am game. All right. Well, why don't we start there? Why don't we talk about uh, the digital divide and why that's such a passion area for you and, and your thoughts on 5G? Let's start where, um, where you're at. Well, uh, the, uh, the basis of, of it is I, I'm going to make a, a uh, strong statement that you cannot get a, a, a decent education in modern times without having access to the internet. And access to the internet means that you've got access all the time uh, and and uh, you have all the knowledge of society available to you. And that is the case for uh, at least half of our students today. They have, do have access. Uh, we're still learning how to uh, let the students benefit from that access. Uh, but there's no doubt in my mind that that a student that that uh, lives in this world where he, uh, the purpose of the teacher is to teach them how to avail themselves of these things, to guide them to uh, to uh, handle the difference between one individual and another. Uh, but the students really 
are uh, to a large extent self-taught. Uh, and the, the problem is that half of our students in an advanced country like the United States that do not have access to the internet. Uh, partly it's because they can't afford it, uh, and the other part is because there's no service available. There is no technological reason for that to be the case. The uh, carriers that provide us with service, people like AT&T, T-Mobile, uh, Verizon, and many other carriers, uh, license the radio spectrum from us. You and I and all our colleagues own the radio spectrum, and they, the licenses have one basic requirement, and that is that the use of the spectrum should be in the public interest and convenience. Uh, and yet, there we have it. 25% uh, of our country is not covered, uh, and 25% of our uh, population can't afford the service. Uh, if it's possible, if you built a system in this country based upon education only, that you could provide service at between $5 and $10 a month. At that, that level, the government could afford to, to uh, pay for anybody that couldn't afford it. Uh, and uh, we'd be able to have everybody have uh, access, service, get a proper education. So that, that's uh, my view in a, in a, uh, in a few words. Uh, the emphasis of the carriers today, and, and I don't blame them uh, because that is what their business uh, future business is based on, uh, and it's 5G. The 5G does not affect people like you and me very much. The 5G is really promoted at a new business model for the carriers where they're going to provide uh, services to companies, factories, things of that nature. And the two things that they keep promoting are autonomous cars and, and uh, remote surgery. Uh, and uh, you have to let me know when you are uh, open-minded to having a, a surgeon working on your body uh, over a wireless connection, and uh, I will start worrying about whether you're still rational. <laughs> and autonomous cars are not going to be here for a long time, and when they are, they're not going to depend on the cellular network, and they are going to require a, a really low latency like. Uh, you're going to need a network between two cars that are about to crash to stop them from crashing. So uh, I'm sorry to take up so much time uh, in what's supposed to be a conversation, uh, but uh, you can tell that I'm uh, passionate about this thing. I think the FCC should be taking some action to either get the carriers to uh, fill this gap uh, in their service or let other people come in and do it using the radio spectrum. Fascinating. And so so you think the FCC should be uh, pushing the carriers to make the internet more widely available to, uh, to, to address this gap? Exactly. You know, the the, uh, the uh, availability of internet is affecting our lives. In, uh, you could, well, of course, your podcast uh, uh, opportunity wouldn't exist, right? If you hadn't invented the wireless phone, Marty, there would be no podcasting. <laughs> One could, yeah. I could argue that you're the uh, the godfather of not just mobile, but the godfather of podcasting and, and everything else that came after mobile. 
Well, just so you know, I wasn't the only one that did that. There were lots and lots of people involved in what you just suggested. But I just want to point out one thing to you. One of the things that we proved, and that is very clear now, you know, you're aware of the fact that there are more cell phones now in the world than there are people. And most of the people in the world do have cell phones and, and cell phone uh, access. We pretty much have demonstrated that people are mobile. They're naturally mobile. They're moving around all the time, and they need to have access all the time. And when you talk to the politicians, they'll say, well, we will uh, uh, give people a cable service, and that'll solve the problem. Well, haven't we already demonstrated that the wired telephone is history? The number of wired telephones going down, down, it's down. In the United States, there are only less than 60,000 wired telephone left, and more cell phones than people. So uh, the answer is somehow or other we have to provide wireless access to everybody for all of the services, and, and the most essential service today is education. We just have got to make sure that our future generations are educated. We have wasted a lot of time in the past uh, in all kinds of ways. Uh, and now's the time to correct all that. You know, it's interesting, I, and I wish I could remember who said it. So I'm, uh, this is not my idea, and I wish I could give credit where credit is due. But I, I consume a lot, and sometimes I forget where I consumed it. But I recently um, heard somebody say that America's biggest challenge is converting its economic and innovation uh, advantage into the betterment of its society in that the, the advantages uh, of some of the technology and economic breakthroughs that, that have come from the creation of the United States uh, are not distributed in the way that maybe it should be. Uh, I'm far from a socialist, but uh, there are people who say that this is a really big problem, is that the distribution of technology, access to technology, and therefore the ability to distribute um, uh, wealth and the American dream more evenly is a problem for our country. I'm, I'm curious to your reaction. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, and, and I am absolutely not a socialist. I, I am a very strong believer in, in uh, competition uh, in some form of capitalism. Uh, I think that uh, when I, as an engineer, you know, the one thing that we do, we engineers do, is look at the long-term future. You know, what is the objective? Uh, and there is enough productivity potential so there, nobody should be poor. We are so inefficient at most things we do. All we have to do is improve our efficiency, uh, just by not by orders of magnitude, by percentages, percentages, and we can have enough for everybody. We already are producing more food than uh, all of us uh, can consume. So yes, we have problems. Uh, they are hard problems. They don't have to get solved. Uh, in uh, in a few years, they get solved generationally. And the positive thing is, if you look at the trends, we are moving in a positive way. People are richer today than they have ever been. We are taking care of the environment better today than we have ever done in the past. We've got a long way to go, but I think we in this country are doing better than most countries in the world. When it comes to our uh, political system, think about it. The successful countries of the world have copied our 
system and the, the things that the Chinese are doing to try to enhance their authoritarian uh, approach uh, is to inject elements of capitalism uh, and uh, they're not succeeding. The, 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 uh, you create an environment where people worry a lot about what they say, where they get persecuted because of what they say, where the government grades have been, uh, and you are st uh, stifling uh, innovation. And that's why the innovation is still happening here. And I think that's going to keep happening. Thank you for that. Uh, now, like I said earlier, I, of course, I want to talk to you about the past and the cell phone and, um, and, and a lot of your history. But I'm curious, uh, you, are a f you are a futurist in my mind. You, you're, you, more than anybody in sort of the modern era, are responsible for creating what I, why, what I would describe as a materially different future, right? There's before your invention, and then there's after your invention. And you and the team who did what you did uh, changed the world in a profound way like few, few others have. And so with that as sort of your legacy, as your backdrop, I'm very curious how the future looks to you, uh, Marty. Well, uh, I think I gave you a, a very strong hint. Uh, I think that things are better now than they have ever been. I think we've got a long way to go. Uh, and you're right about uh, the, the, my views of the future. Uh, I tend to be a dreamer, uh, which is a, uh, I like the description, uh, but that doesn't describe a successful businessman very much. So, uh, but uh, dreaming has served me well. Uh, the reason that I uh, like to think that I know more about the future than other people is that I spend more time there than most of you normal people. And I have this engineering tool that I described to you. And I'm going to give you one example, uh, Chris, if you'll forgive me for uh, digressing. You can digress all you want, Marty. This, this, I'm the king of digressions. Go wherever you want. I'll chase you. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about this issue of how inefficient we are at, uh, at energy. Uh, you know, the, the way uh, in the old days you used to create heat uh, to, uh, to keep yourself warm and cook your food was to burn wood. And boy, there's nothing more inefficient than that. Uh, and we've been getting better and better. We got to natural gas, uh, the most inefficient way that we know of today. And I don't mean to denigrate the people that are uh, in favor of sustainability, because I am too. Uh, but nuclear energy is, is without question the best way to do it. Uh, and we just have to learn how to do nuclear energy better, because the most efficient way in science today to create energy is all you have to do is copy what the sun does. The, the, the process of making energy in the sun that's been going on for many billions of years and will go on for billions of years in the future with no effect at all uh, on the total amount of this issue of sustainability is you take two hydrogen atoms and you squeeze them together and, and they fuse into one helium atom and some energy. And that is more efficient than what we're doing by many, many orders of magnitude. And it turns out that almost everything that we do is that inefficient. Sounds kind of ridiculous, but it's true in education, it's true in business, it's true in manufacturing. And, and to me, that's a positive thing. If, if you're really inefficient, getting an improvement turns out to be a no-brainer. And so uh, that's why uh, I think we are on an uptick 
uh, and there is no reason why anybody should be poor back to your uh, question of uh, there is enough wealth in society so that we can have uh, people who have made exceptional contributions uh, they have more wealth than those that make lesser contributions but nobody should be poor nobody should be hungry uh, everybody needs to be educated uh, and i think it's the role of the government to make sure that happens uh, if, uh, i don't believe the government should be doing all those things because uh, governments tend to be inefficient <laughs> in themselves uh, the uh, the way to uh, assure efficiency is to have competition so you've got choices yes thank you for that now, I'm curious about what you said about nuclear. Are you distinguishing it from, I mean, obviously we have a massive mega category emerging in quote unquote sustainable energy around electricity, and battery operated cars and, and solar panels on our homes and things along these lines. And so I'm curious how you think about solar um, and, uh, and nuclear. Well, uh, uh, nuclear is clearly... Uh, the, the most efficient way to go. Uh, we uh, uh, th th Things don't happen very quickly. The approach we took to nuclear uh, had some uh, downsides. Uh, one is that you have to uh, contain a, a, uh, uh, what is potentially a very dangerous uh, process. Uh, and uh, we've had some accidents. Uh, we said when we have an accident like that in places where people uh, are nervous of, because they don't really understand what's going on, uh, we tend to be overly protective. And that's one of the things that's happened with nuclear generation. There are countries, uh, France, for example, where most of the energy in that country is produced uh, by nuclear power, and they're not having any trouble at all. And it's far more efficient, believe it or not, than, than solar or wind power is today because the nuclear reactions go on day and night. Uh, with the wind, the, uh, the wind power uh, windmill costs a lot of money, and it doesn't produce any electricity. But there's no wind. Same, same with the sun. At least half the time, there's no sun. So uh, I think the wind power and solar power are uh, important uh, in transition. Uh, but the vision for the future is for us to master fusion to come up with a, a way of producing very inexpensive uh, energy. Uh, the uh, nature of fusion reactors is that when, when you have a failure and uh, the whole process stops and there's no danger, there's, there's no uh, spent fuel involved. So we know uh, what the uh, future solution is. Uh, we're just not out there yet. It's going to take a lot of research uh, and a lot of work to do that, and I hope that we don't let our prejudices about nuclear energy stop us from continuing to go on. The answer is there. We're in a transition period now. Solar is part of that transition. Uh, electric cars are part of that transition. They're important. Uh, but don't ever for a minute think that that is the end game. Uh, I'm hung up on this hydrogen reaction and uh, our children will be driving hydrogen cars, not electric cars. Fascinating. And I do want to ask you why, but before I do that, one of the, and I'm not the engineer that you are, and I'm not an expert on this topic at all, but one of the things that I read about is the issues around lithium. 
and the mining of lithium and how, how dirty that is and damaging to the environment it is. And of course, with all of the lithium in these batteries, um, we don't, you know, they, they cause tremendous environmental damage um, after the fact. And so, I, you know, I've always wondered with electric power, particularly as we go to try to store electric power, um, are we creating a set of unintended consequences around the production of what's required for electric power and then the footprint it leaves after it's no longer useful? And so I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Of course, <laughs> you haven't come up with anything yet that I haven't thought about at one time or another that is uh, technical in, uh, in nature. Uh, let me uh, do a segue for just a second. I do have an abiding belief in people. I think that, that, uh, that uh, people tend to, uh, over the long haul, to do the right thing, uh, and people can be very, very smart. Uh, I also have an abiding belief in science. And so I know that these problems that you talked about, uh, lithium is an example, uh, when the problem becomes evident, the scientists are going to solve that problem. Uh, I just read last week that, sure enough, because there's a shortage of lithium, uh, there are scientists working on alternative materials. So we're going to solve that problem. But once again, nothing happens fast in, in science. It, people keep talking about how we solve the pandemic uh, solution. The, uh, you got to help me with the word. What, what, oh, the, uh, the, the vaccine? <laughs> I lost a word for a second. I, I do it all the time, Marty. <laughs> Every time I tell my wife I think I'm getting old, she says, you've been losing words your whole life. <laughs> this is not new, Marty. It's called being a guy, I think. <laughs> well, my excuse for that is I think my mind is getting ahead of my mouth. So uh, I better slow down a little bit. But uh, so uh, it's going to take time for, for us to catch up. Uh, as long as we are open-minded uh, and transparent, the the idea of uh, of having a problem and hiding the problem is something that happens in, in authoritarian societies. Uh, you don't get away with it in uh, our society. We uh, the problems pop up, and we maybe over exaggerate them, which I think is happening with a, a number of our problems. Uh, and it's very hard to be uh, conservative anyway, and I don't consider myself to be a, con a conservative. I'm, I'm uh, uh, my thinking, I think, is, is more liberal than most people. Uh, and yet there are times when we should not be racing ahead, when we should be understanding that there are interim solutions, uh, but uh, we can live with those interim solutions until we come up with the right answer. And to back to your point about uh, solar and uh, uh, wind power, uh, those will be useful to some extent, but they are not the ultimate solution. They are interim solutions. On the way to get to, uh, to nuclear, on the way to get yeah. to hydrogen cars. That's my view. Fascinating. Now, you also made a comment a little bit ago, Marty, about you, you didn't like what some of the mobile companies, the carriers were doing in, in terms of marketing 5G. Could, could you say a little bit more about that? Well, uh, it's very simple. Uh, do you have a 5G phone, uh, Chris? Yes, I sure do. Did you buy it because it had 5G in it? N no, I bought it because um, it was time for me to get a new phone. And 
maybe I'm unusual, but um, new technology always takes me some learning. And so I know a lot of people stand in line to get the new phone. Uh, for me, it, it takes me like two months to adjust to a new phone or a new laptop. So I'm not in a big hurry to get one. But anyways, yes, I, I, I do have one. No, well, well, you gave me the right answer, though. Uh, you, you bought the new phone because you needed a new phone, not because uh, it had 5G in it, because what 5G does for you is it makes the phone more expensive. It makes the phone bigger. Uh, it makes the battery life shorter. So uh, what what? benefit do you get out of 5g so why have the mobile companies spent you know what feels like billions in marketing to tell us that we all should have and we should want 5g you just you just expressed my story better than i did by the way i'm not opposed to what the carriers are doing they got businesses they ought to manage those businesses and optimize them and they are to some extent competing although they act very much like the old bell system which uh I know we're going to get to my book at some point, but uh, if there was an organization that I took exception to as a fundamental organization in society, it was the old bell system where they had a monopoly. Monopolies just don't work uh, in in, uh, any sense at all. So uh, what the carriers are creating, they're looking to the future and they're observing that they are being marginalized. Uh, the world wants the carrier to be a pipe to deliver information at the lowest possible cost to the most people. It kind of makes sense. Well, they don't like that. Uh, and I can't believe it. They want to participate in the uh, computing revolution. Uh, they want to uh, provide much more than just being a pipe. Uh, and one way to do that is with a thing called edge computing, where they take all these cell sites that are what cellular technology is, and they put big computers in there, and they sell those computer services to people that are running factories and performing complicated processes. Uh, And of course, they charge for that as they should. Uh, And because they've got a cell site close to almost everybody, what they call latency, uh, the the, uh, time delay between uh, transmitting and receiving uh, is minimal. Uh, And so, uh, what they are doing is creating a new business for themselves. It certainly does not not do anything uh, for those of us uh, who are paying for their for their uh, new business venture. Uh, and uh, I kind of object to that. Uh, I I don't mind them being successful and having money left over to provide me better service. But if they're going to do a new venture, they ought to do what you did when you started the business: go out and raise money and not uh, make my cellular bill among the highest in the world. I don't know if you were aware of that. When the cellular started, if you wanted an inexpensive service, you came to the United States, and we now have a, a, the most expensive service in the world, and not because it's costing more, it's because the, uh, the carriers are looking to the future, uh, and they're trying to create a, biz- a better, more successful business. I think they ought to do that, but they ought to fulfill their obligations to the rest of us while they're doing it. There ought to be a a readjustment of their priorities. Uh, And so somehow or other, there's got to be a way for us to have uh, our kids educated, uh, having uh, internet access, uh, and still have the carriers be successful. 
Yes, that makes t- a ton of sense to me, Marty. And it's interesting, you know, of course, having all lived together through this pandemic, one of the big ahas, and frankly, one of the things that I don't think is talked about enough, certainly for me, is the reality that um, what has become clear through this pandemic is the internet, the cloud, and mobile computing are now essential services, or said a different way, where would our culture, where would our society be had we had to come through uh, this crisis without the mobile phone, without the cloud, without the internet? We wouldn't have been able to get groceries in many cases. Yeah, no, that's very well said. And, and if you think about it, uh, you, you don't like to th- think about the pandemic having advantages, but it, uh, our reaction to the pandemic has accelerated our ability to use these tools. So uh, let's let's hope that uh, with all the tragedy that's happened out of the pandemic, the good part of it is that we not only have these new tools, specifically the internet and connectivity, uh, but we're learning how to use these things better. And by the way, I think we're just beginning on that. I I, uh, I do Zoom calls almost uh, uh, multiples every day, uh, and I think it's wonderful. In fact, you know. If, uh, this may interest you. I, I give a lot of speeches. Uh, you could tell that because I keep dominating our conversation, and I apologize. For that. I'm here to listen to you, Marty. <laughs> but, uh, I get more feedback from a Zoom call than I do in an auditorium looking at the people. Because I can actually see maybe not a thousand people, but I can see at least 50 of those people enough to see their expressions, to get feedback while I'm talking so that I'm speaking to people, not a blank wall. So uh, so I think we are learning a great deal. That all that's been accelerated by the, uh, by the pandemic. But it all comes back to, uh, or you can tell that I, uh, that I uh, have got a very close mind. Uh, it's efficiency. We're learning how to be more efficient and being more efficient means that we can produce more wealth you know, with the same amount of uh, input and solve the problems of poverty, education, healthcare, you know, all those things that uh, we are doing a, a marginal, a poor to marginal job at. And I want to repeat that. I think that our educational system, uh, it certainly uh, uh, varies. There are some places where there's superb education, other place where it's dismal, but in general, we're just trying to work ourselves out of a hole in education. Uh, in healthcare, we're just beginning to understand that we don't have healthcare. What well, we got is sick care. We let people get sick and then we cure them. Uh, and and yet, using these tools that we're talking about now, the internet, connectivity, there is the potential to to uh, solve healthcare. Just to eliminate disease before it happens. But to sense that a disease is starting in your body and before it really becomes a disease, zap it and stop it. But you can't do that unless you measure body, your body uh, almost continuously. So the potential we've got is just enormous. Uh, and a lot of that is based upon uh, these uh, new tools, but uh, to technology. And I just want to, uh, every time I say the word technology, I, I have to add to that, that technology is the application of science to make products and services 
that make people's lives better. You can't say the word technology without understanding that it's people that technology is directed to help. You said technology is the application of science to help people. Is that what you said, Marty? To create products and services that make people's lives better. That's yes. the purpose of technology. If, it's, if, if you've got some uh, technological, uh, some scientific phenomenon that's interesting, but doesn't make people feel better or solve some problem, it's not technology, it's curiosity. It's uh, scientific exploration. All good things, but they're not technology. Yes. Now, as somebody, Marty, who spends a lot of time in the future, more time than most of us, um, what, what do you want to tell us about the future that, that, um, that you think most people don't, don't realize? Well, uh, you know, I mentioned before, one of the uh, indicators of what the future is is what the trend is. And, and uh, I just read a book uh, uh, the, written by a guy who's now my friend because he wrote the book called Fewer, Richer, Greener. Fewer, Richer, Greener. And uh, boy, he, he captured all of my optimism in that title. The, the people worry about the fact there are more and more people in the world today. How are you going to feed them all? Uh, and what the, this author, whose name is Harvey Siegel, said uh, is that the number of people, the growth of population is slowing down. Uh, and at some point, uh, in not the distant future, maybe in the next 10 years or so, We'll reach a peak and, and the population of the world will start going down. That the history is, for all known history, if you draw a curve of what the wealth of the society is, it's been increasing. Uh, you know, I'm not suggesting that we've solved the problem. There's still too many poor people. Uh, but uh, just the point that you made earlier about the impact of the cell phone, in Africa alone, over a billion people moved out of severe poverty over the last 20 years, largely because of the impact of a cell phone, because the cell phone came along and allowed them to have ways of exchanging money, improve productivity in other ways. So the trend in all of these things is in a very positive direction. And amazingly enough, when you do these things, when you get more efficient at all of these things that you're doing, you become more sustainable. And that's where the greener comes in. So the idea that we're gonna become more sustainable by making people poorer, and by the way, that's what we're doing today. We're doing, uh, I just read in the paper this morning that the government, uh, I'm not gonna get political, but they uh, 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 wanna produce less oil so that we can be greener, but in the process, we're gonna pay more for uh, uh, gasoline and fuel, and you know who's going to get hurt by that. It's certainly not the wealthy people. It's going to be the poorest people. So somebody has got to do some planning, understand what the future is, figure out what the direction is, make sure that we're continuously moving in that direction. But let's do it in an efficient way and not make the poor people uh, pay for things that uh, the rich people benefit from in the sense that they think they're doing something they really aren't. Starting to sound like a preacher. <laughs> well, if anybody's earned the right, Marty, it's you. Now, I'm curious. I mean, you literally are a person who was part of a team that changed the future 
in one of the most exponential ways in, in modern history. There's just no question about that. And so I, I want to ask you about that, of course. But uh, before we go there, you know, when you say what you just said, that the mobile phone has been uh, an, a hugely important factor for uh, helping to raise a billion people in Africa out of poverty, and the fact that there are more mobile phones on the planet than, than people, and the fact that I, I read a study a while ago that said people would rather give up their automobile than their phone, and there's never been a, there's never been a piece of technology or a tool of any kind that people sleep with. Right? People sleep with their phone right next to them. It's often the first thing they look at before they go to bed and the first thing they interact with um, when they wake up. And, and I would argue that we have roughly 140 million Americans now who are millennials or Gen Z, and we've taken to calling them native digitals. And the reason we call them native digitals is they're the first generation of humans that have grown up integrated with the technology. And that is in large part because of the mobile phone. So when you think about all of the things that have happened since you and your colleagues at Motorola did what you did, how does it feel to you when you look at what's happened in the world since you introduced this invention? Well, first of all, uh, I have to tell you that I try very hard to be humble because I didn't do all those things and the cell phone didn't do all those things. And we did, all we did was a recognition that when people are connected they are more efficient, they're more uh, productive. Uh, we learned that, it take a genius to figure it out because we were in the two-way radio business and we were building car phones. You know, it's always, when I say the word car phone, it's almost like a dirty word, Chris, but, uh, but we were building uh, I remember those first generation car phones very well, Marty. They were a, a, a thing to behold. Yeah, well, we were building two-way radios for people like police and businesses. And the thing that they were demonstrating was that they could manage mobile resources more efficiently. You couldn't run a concrete mixing company without having two-way radios. You couldn't run a police department without having two-way radios. And so that's how we learned about the importance of connectivity. Uh, and then, uh, uh, we uh, the technology improved so we could put that to a radio in a person's hand. And then we had people like Orlando Wilson, who, the superintendent of police in Chicago, came to us and told us, you know, I got a problem. The people that I'm serving, that the police departments are serving, are in the community walking around, and my policemen are stuck in their cars because they got to communicate, and they can't communicate when they're not in their cars. Can you fix that problem? Seriously, that, this is what, in fact, you can see that in more detail in my book, which I keep mentioning to you just in case you forget. But uh, I have it sitting right next to me, Marty. <laughs> I haven't forgotten at all. Uh, so uh, it, it's the market that taught us about connectivity and, and improving uh, the uh, efficiency. Uh, and uh, there was no way in uh, 1972 when I thought about the idea of making a, a cell phone uh, that I could have imagined that someday there'd be a supercomputer in every cell phone. Or if I did imagine, I wouldn't tell it to anybody because they would think I was crazy. <laughs> you don't realize how fast progress uh, has been uh, executing. Uh, back to 1972, uh, there were no personal computers in 1972. 
obviously there were no cell phones, but there were no cordless phones either. There was no uh, large-scale uh, integrated circuits. So uh, these were really primitive times. And the only thing that we knew at that time, because we had seen what happened in the toy radio business, that someday when you were born, you would be assigned a phone number. And if you didn't answer the phone, you were dead. We, we seriously told that story then because we believed that the cell phone was going to become pervasive. And, and that turned out to be true. But when it comes to, to all of the things that are in the cell phone today, and I have to tell you, Chris, we're only at the beginning. The cell phone today is a suboptimal device. You've got two major manufacturers, a bunch of hanger-outers, uh, and they're all building the same phone. And it's uh, theoretically a device that does all things for all people. And whenever you have something that purports to do all things for all people, it will do none of them in an optimal way. I think the future of the cell phone is a much more customization. Uh, everybody ought to have a phone that is suited to their purposes. Why? Because everybody's different from everybody else. I don't know if you're aware of that, but uh, they, they, if you, uh, I'm going to sound like an engineer again. If you calculate the number of possible people that can exist, uh, it is uh, close to infinite that you could define as, as there, there have never been two people the same and there never will be in any meaningful way. And yet we'll come up with a device like the latest Apple phone and say, this will solve everybody's problems. And the way it solves your problem is you can customize it with apps. All you have to do is go into the app store and select among 2 million apps, which are the ones that are right for you. Ludicrous. The, uh, I have a vision of a cell phone that is there to make your life better, where you don't have to learn anything new, and where the cell phone optimizes itself by observing you and by listening to you and by uh, understanding what your needs are. That, to me, is a real uh, cell phone that is focused on solving your problems, not the whole world's problems, but your problems. And so do you envision a day where your your mobile phone observes you, so to speak, as you mentioned, and begins to tailor its functionality and capabilities based on um, what you do with it, as opposed to what you just described, which is, you know, it's great that all these apps are available, but the reality is most of us, I think, I don't go onto my app store on my phone and troll around there and say, oh, what new thing might be valuable to me today? I just, I live my life. And if somebody tells me about something or I hear about something, maybe I try it. But I think we all know we're not using this technology uh, uh, to its fullest. But on the other hand, you know, sitting there trying to figure out which of those 2 million apps we should download is not so, something most of us do. Yeah, no, I think you got it exactly right. I think we are making a huge progress in artificial intelligence. I'm not sure I like the words uh, artificial intelligence, uh, but having uh, a, a computer program that has one objective and that's optimizing your communications ability, uh, we're starting on that now. Uh, Siri and, uh, and all of the different versions, Alexa, are all uh, versions of that. And at times, uh, Alexa's a little scary because she does anticipate 
uh, uh, your needs and, and questions from time to time. Still in a very primitive state, uh, but once again, if you look at what these curves look like, when you start out in a primitive state, you're going up and up, uh, and our kids, well, my great-granddaughter, I don't look old enough. I'm, I'm asking you to say You're this. You're not old you enough to have a great-granddaughter, Marty. Thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, is uh, two years old, and she now uh, operates an, an iPad. I, you know, she just learned how to talk. Of course, naturally, since she's my great-granddaughter, she's brilliant. But, you know, two-year-old, she just learned how to talk, and she knows the alphabet. Uh, and uh, and she can move stuff around on, a, on an iPad. So can you imagine what's going to happen with this kid when she's a teenager and when she grows up? She's going to be a different class of person. Yes. And this is something I, I don't understand why more people aren't talking about. We recently published a piece on the difference between native analogs and native digitals. And our argument is exactly what you just said, Marty, that um, the generational differences here are not the typical generational differences because native digitals are growing up like your great granddaughter. They're 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 in this technology from the beginning. You know, your little person's turning into a real little person when your granddaughter says to you, um, "Hey, uh, what's the password?" Right when they want to start doing things to buy things and so forth. And so, I think one of the things most people don't realize, and I'd l like to bounce this off of you, is that. Uh, those of us who are native analog um, are 180 degree different. And that is to say these new humans are a new category of human being. Is that how it seems to you? Well, it is. Uh, you know, the only thing I, I don't want to uh, uh, characterize myself as being useless. So we're not going to let go to that extreme. Uh, but the challenge for those of us that are not, by the way, thank you for adding the vocabulary. Say it again about the digital... Native analog, which is what you and I are, versus native digital, which is what um, your great-granddaughter... Uh, anybody under the age of 35, for all intents and purposes, is a native digital because they've grown up with the technology. So I only have to defend myself and you uh, a little bit, uh, us uh, native, is that uh, we're not hopeless. We could still learn. It's going to be very hard for us to learn because you learn much faster when you're two years old, and then when you're, uh, certainly when you're 92, uh, but it turns out that there are studies that prove that uh, your learning ability is based upon practice. So there is still some hope for us, and there is a counter to being a native digital, and that is uh, you do get uh, uh, wisdom with experience. So there is still hope for us and uh, native I keep forgetting the other part Native of the analogs. <laughs> Native analogs. <laughs> it is very hard. Actually, that's an interesting place, and I, I absolutely, of course, want to do want to get to your book. And, and this part of this comes through in the book, but I think you're a person for whom is an incredible inspiration to so many of us. And I've heard you talk about and write about, you know, some of your thoughts on how do you have a great life. I mean, you've had an extraordinary life of contribution, of achievement. Uh, you seem to have had a wonderful personal life, although maybe you can tell me. And so um, 
What are your thoughts on if I said, you know what, I really admire Marty and he knows a lot about not just technology and business and innovation, but a lot about life too. What life lessons might you want to share with me? Well, first of all, I ought to tell you that I think I'm a very lucky person. So uh, it's, a, it's not all, in fact, I, very little of it was my choice. I just happened to keep falling into extraordinary situations, just you know, having the parents that I had, uh, uh, somehow understanding that I was going to be an engineer even when I was a little kid, and going to a wonderful university, Illinois Tech, uh, get a, going into the Navy, that I really think made a man out of me, and finding Motorola, uh, 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 doing the best that I could at Motorola for 29 years, and then becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, all of those things have just been, uh, and, and then aside from that, uh, I got into uh, a health kick some years ago, uh, got into uh, running, uh, which I think uh, is uh, a strong contributor, not only to my health, uh, but to uh, my ability to keep uh, contributing. So uh, what do I suggest to other people? I, I wouldn't presume to tell anybody uh, how to live their lives uh, other than uh, to uh, uh, persevere, to understand that things are getting better all the time. But the most important thing to anybody in the world is to keep learning. Because learning is what keeps you alive, is what keeps you up to, uh, lets you keep the conversation going with other people, that lets you keep contributing. Uh, and learning doesn't happen automatically. You have to work at it. You have to be curious. You have to understand or to want to understand things uh, and work at it. Because the studies have shown, this is psychological studies, that if you stop learning, if you become complacent, if you become so happy with your life that all you think about is the pleasure of life and you don't do the stress uh, of uh, learning, you lose the ability to learn. If that isn't a scary thing to you, uh, I'd be surprised that you could not be able to learn new things just because you haven't practiced it. So that's the, I, if, if I was giving advice to somebody, uh, I don't know if, they, if people can control that, uh, but... Uh, stay curious, keep learning, keep putting yourself into uncomfortable situations where you want to know more about something. Don't accept what other people say uh, at face value, but uh, try to understand what's behind it. Hmm. Thank you for that, Marty. Think about now, that. If that solve our political problems, if people start doing their own thinking uh, and stop this polarization of the either on one side or the other side, but look at the issues one at a time and think about them, learn about them, teach other people about them. Uh, and uh, we'd be, uh, I'm, I'm back to, to this thing I keep getting back to, but we'd be much more efficient as a society. Says, spoken like a true engineer, Marty. <laughs> exactly. All right. So, um, this awesome book and your incredible story. There's a start point I'd like to start at, but I'm curious, is there a, a place you'd like to start when sort of telling the story of, of the invention of the mobile phone and, and, and the way you lay it out in your book? Well, it, uh, I'll tell you how it all started. I, I, uh, if you go around and ask people where the cell phone came from, you don't, very few people have an understanding. It, 
And I'm sorry to say, even after publishing my book, it's still very, very few people. But you're going to fix that, right? So, you know. I'm, I'm going to fix that. I'm, I'm sure that everybody understands that what happened was Al Gore and Bill Gates got together. They trained a bunch of Bigfoots and they installed the towers. And that's what happened. I think that's what most people think. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Well, it, it really, well, you know, I told you before about how we learned about connectivity and people and the fact that people are mobile. Uh, and then the Bell System, you know, Bell Labs, who is an organization that was extraordinary and, and I greatly admired, they uh, came up with the idea of uh, using lots of, of uh, cell sites instead of a single tower in the middle of a city, that you were going to put a lot of cell sites, which allowed you to use the radio spectrum over and over again in each one of these cell sites. Uh, and when they this, uh, these two people that wrote this memo at Bell Labs, the people who I greatly respected, a guy named Ray Young, uh, another guy named uh, 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 Greg Reed, uh, they uh, wrote a memo and, and they said, you know, car phones could be much more efficient if we use this cellular approach. And they put this memo in the file, and that was for 1947, uh, 1969, and they announced, we're going to build this thing, uh, but it's not going to be a very business, uh, big business, because uh, our consulting firm, which happened to be one of the major consulting firms in the world, determined that there were only going to be, at most, 900,000 cell phones in the world, because they were all car phones. And guess what? They were right. The most car phones that existed in the world were about 900,000. Uh, that they didn't think about is the fact that a car phone didn't solve the problem. I mean, for a hundred years, we had learned that communications was important, but in order to communicate with somebody, you had to have that wire that constrained you. You had to be in your house, you had to be in your office. Uh, and uh, and the Bell System solution to this is, oh, when you go in your car, we're going to connect you. Well, most people are in their car a tiny fraction of the time. Most of the time, they're out in the world doing things. You're like, oh, you have to go out on the freeway or in the airport and see nobody is where they want to be. Everybody's going somewhere else. It's funny how we don't want to be where we are, right, Marty? We are. Everybody's going somewhere all the time. <laughs> yeah, well... Someday we're going to uh, solve that problem, too, when we get virtual reality down to the point where there's no difference between being there uh, and uh, and being electronically, uh, electronically connected. But we're a long way from there. People are mobile. They like to be moving around. Uh, and uh, the cell phone moves in that direction. Uh, as I keep harping, uh, we got a long way to go before the cell phone is doing all the things that it can do, yeah, but uh, certainly uh, it's making a step in, in the right direction. And, and that was the uh, essence of it. And the Bell System was fixated on what their 1947 researchers had come up with, car phones. And, and we had already progressed beyond that. We had gone through the uh, the police department example that I, that I gave to you. We knew that, that businesses couldn't run without, many of them without handheld uh, phones. And so uh, we were just a little company in Chicago. Well, it was uh, maybe not that tiny, we were a billion dollars. But compared to the Bell System, which was the biggest entity in the world, in every measure, 
more people, more revenues, more profits. Uh, and we took them on. Uh, they, uh, they had 200 lobbyists at the FCC alone. We had three people covering the FCC and all of the Congress. So it was a, almost a hopeless endeavor. And that is what stimulated me in 1972 to say, hey, fellas, I know I'm an engineer, but I think we got to do some marketing here. And the way to get people to understand the value of being connected is to show them what it's like. Let them actually hold a device in their hand and talk to somebody at a distance. Uh, and uh, I'm not suggesting that that alone uh, uh, made us beat the bell system, but it certainly had a, a, an impact. So I, 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 maybe if we could just fast forward for a second. One of the favorite uh, stories that I've heard you tell, I've heard you tell it in person, obviously it's in your book, is of the first ever cell phone call made which of course was made by you. Uh, could you tell me that story, Marty, and <laughs> bring that to life? Well, I, I hate to do it because it's a fun story, but uh, uh, in the scheme of things, uh, not all that important, but uh, we finally got to the point where we had a plan to tell the world about uh, what uh, uh, communication, personal communications ought to be like, and we had a plan to go to New York City and get a lot of publicity, which, of course, we did, and it was successful. And then we were going to go to Washington and give demonstrations to a whole bunch of people. But there had to be a beginning. <clears throat> and the first beginning was we were going to be on a morning show in New York. Wow, is that exciting. And I wake up the morning of April 3rd, 1973, and they tell me we got bumped from the morning show. And, and the our PR people are are uh, desperate, and they found a reporter uh, who was prepared to interview me. Uh, and they said, "Well, you know, it's better than nothing." Uh, and I said, "Fine, but if we're if I'm going to do an interview, let's do it in a meaningful way. Let's get out on the street where we're really demonstrating the power of uh, personal connectivity." And I meet this guy on the street. And uh, after I got done explaining what we had, I had to call somebody to show that it worked. And I have to tell you, Chris, it was serendipitous. Uh, I reached in my pocket, pulled out my paper phone book, if that did give you a hint about <laughs> how, what primitive times these were. Uh, and I looked up the number of uh, Joel Engel, who was my counterpart in the Bell system. His role in the Bell system was to execute on these uh, car phone systems. Uh, and I dialed his number on this cell phone but, with this uh, report. I hate to interrupt you, Marty, but essentially he was your competitor, yes? He was trying to do what you were trying to do? Yeah, well, the whole Bell system was my competitor, right? Right. You may, if you pick somebody big, you may as well pick somebody that's the biggest in the world to, to be your competitor. I told you how, how naive I was, although, you know, we did end up winning. So I uh, dialed uh, Joel's number. Uh, uh, amazingly, talk about uh, the serendipitous of history, he answered the phone, not his assistant. We used to call him secretaries in those days. Uh, but he answered the phone, uh, and uh, I said, hi, Joel, this is Marty Cooper. Uh, he says, hi, Marty. I could tell a little suspicion in his voice. Uh, 
uh, I say, Joel, I'm calling you on a cell phone, but a real cell phone, a personal, handheld, portable cell phone. Silence at the other end of the line. I mean, you know, what can the guy say? So it, it turns out we had a, a, a respectful conversation. Uh, Joel, to this day, does not remember that conversation. I don't blame him. Uh, he doesn't dispute that the conversation has because uh, I have to tell you that when we demonstrated this thing, there were two cell phones in existence in the world. Uh, and they were both hand handmade of individual parts. Uh, you could not imagine anything more unreliable. So while I was talking to Joel on the streets of New York, there was a guy standing by with a spare a few feet away, just in case there was a, a failure. So that that is it was the first public call. You can bet that we had made in the laboratory hundreds of calls before we made that thing work. Uh, the, the people that built that phone did an absolutely extraordinary job. They, uh, right from the guys who envisioned what the phone ought to look like to the guys that created the technology to squeeze at what was in a 40-pound box uh, into a thing that weighed two pounds, still it was extraordinarily big and heavy for a handheld, but it was a technological marvel. And they put that uh, device back together in uh, three months. Talk about uh, uh, solving big problems in a short amount of time. They were just uh, marvelous. You can bet that there were years of culture behind that three months of uh, effort. Yes. Thank you so much for that story. It leads to another question. If I'm um, a business leader, an entrepreneur, an engineer, a marketer, and I'm either part of or leading an effort within an existing company, a successful company, in your case, Motorola, being, being, being an incredibly successful communications company, um, and was the standard for uh, walkie-talkies for police and, and fire, and I mean, I remember those days, we hear a lot about how difficult it can be for uh, larger existing companies to innovate, to create breakthroughs, to, to, to launch new categories of innovation. Um, what advice might you share or insights might you have around how to create a massive uh, category and technology uh, innovation within an existing company like a Motorola at the time? Well, that's a really important thing that you said. Uh, and the biggest manifestation of that is why... Uh, I think that our culture here in the U.S. Uh, will prevail over authoritarian societies uh, like China, which is the one we keep talking about uh, uh, nowadays. In order to make progress, you have to take chances. You have to take risks. If, if you're deeply concerned about the consequences of failure, you'll never take those risks in the first place. That makes sense? And, and, uh, in authoritarian society, failure is not acceptable. When I joined Motorola, one of the first things that I learned was what their founder had said as a fundamental principle of that company. Uh, and what he said was, do not fear failure, reach out. And I took that seriously. And I took all kinds of chances. I started out in the research department uh, and the things that I tried to do were what other people considered to be impossible uh, or difficult or not practical. Or we could think about a million reasons why you should not do something. So you have to create an environment where people are comfortable taking a chance. And when they fail, 
assuming that their failures were not obvious things, uh, when they fail, you assume that they have learned something from that failure and you take advantage of that knowledge instead of uh, bashing people down. In authoritarian society, you don't do that. You, uh, you, the, it's the fittest survive and the others uh, get crashed down. How many times, Marty, did you fail in trying to invent the, uh, the Motorola cell phone? Well, you know, the, uh, you're right. I only talk about my successes. I don't like to, but I, I did in my book talk about a few of my failures. Uh, and my emphasis every time I talked about a failure was what I learned from it. Because if you don't learn from your failures, uh, what a shame that you've wasted uh, an opportunity. Uh, and uh, the best example in that book, which I hope uh, people will get, gather from the book, because it's only a, a side issue, uh, was one of my failures had to do with the, uh, the creation of the uh, quartz crystal that we use in, in, uh, in our quartz watches. Uh, and where I really did fail in a business sense, and I learned about the uh, price experience curve, uh, which now is a fundamental part of my thinking. The, the, the uh, fact that almost everything that we do scientifically grows exponentially. It doesn't grow in percentages, it grows in multiples. And, uh, and when you uh, do that, uh, this is one of the most powerful tools a futurist can have. When you know that things are going to be multiples better in the future than they are today, you start figuring out how is that, how can that happen? What's going to change? Because doing the same thing you're doing and making it a little better is not the solution. It's going to have to be something really radically different. Uh, and that uh, is what the future is going to be a whole bunch of things that we're just learning how to do many things that we can't even imagine uh, are what the future is. Yes. Are there any other key stories from the book um, that you'd like to highlight with me? Well, there are, you know, I, you know, I don't want to dwell on how old I am. When, when I got into the book, I realized that I really had three books. Uh, I, I, uh, the first part of the book talks a little bit about where my family came from, the fact that my family uh, were uh, persecuted in, uh, in Russia. Uh, and they escaped uh, to Canada and ultimately to the United States. Uh, and the, the story of that perseverance uh, about people uh, becoming uh, entrepreneurs because that was the only opportunity available to them, uh, I, I think was a, a worth a, a book by itself. I just didn't have the time to create three books uh, because the second one was the story of the cell phone uh, and I really believe that had Motorola not taken the position that it did, that we would not have cellular phones today uh, in the same way that we do. The cell phone would have happened. It's the right thing to happen, but it would it could have taken 10 years longer. It would have been very different. Somebody pointed out to me that if 10 years later, Steve Jobs uh, would, would not have been there at the right time uh, to create the Apple concept of, uh, and so many other things. So uh, I thought that was, uh, story was important enough uh, to, for people to understand. Uh, and then the third part of the book, which is probably the most important part that we've been talking about, that is what the future is going to be. About the potential uh, is to have uh, poverty eliminated, no poor people, uh, 
to uh, have disease eliminated. No disease. And I'm serious. There, there, we know enough now to, to know that it is possible someday to have even uh, cancer uh, eliminated before it ever happens. Uh, and, the, 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 of course, the final thing is that everything gets better when you have more collaboration, that uh, when people work together, uh, they will produce more. Uh, we can uh, hopefully talk to an absolute end of warfare. That is the most inefficient thing that can happen in a society, uh, I believe. Uh, and I hope everybody agrees with me. So uh, uh, I forgot where we started, but uh, I have an optimistic uh, view of the future if you haven't figured that out yet. About the lessons of the book. Yes. I'm having second thoughts now since I've survived this long. Maybe I can write another book. But uh, when I started this book, I thought this was going to be the uh, last thing I've ever done. And now I'm spending a lot of time trying to figure out what my next career is. I, I would consider being a podcaster, but you're doing such a good job, Chris, that I don't think I could compete with you. So I, uh, well, I wouldn't be competing with you. And if you wanted to start a podcast, I would do anything and everything I can to help you do that. <laughs> it would be an honor. And I love that you're thinking about that. You know, the other one I'll put on the table for you is um, uh, me and my partners were writing a new book. And we were working on this book for quite some time and we were doing research and we were looking at new frameworks and new ideas and collecting interesting stories and insights and we're doing all this stuff. And as we were working on it, Marty, you know, I'm, I'm a little, um, uh, ADHD. I'm a little, uh, I want it now. I want it now. And as we, as the content was coming together, I began to become frustrated knowing that it was going to take a year for this research or a year for these stories to emerge. And so the three of us sat down one day and we said, you know, I, I want to share this stuff now, right? <laughs> and so we had this aha, which is, hey, why don't we start a newsletter? And so we launched a newsletter uh, um, in February, January, February of this year. And I'll tell you, if you want to have an ongoing written conversation with the world, at least for us, having a newsletter has been an absolute joy. And then as you're writing the newsletter, of course, you're learning what content lands and doesn't land that, that folks who might be interested in your work uh, uh, find more interesting and less interesting. And the truth is having a newsletter is an ongoing experiment in figuring out what your next book is. And so one can fuel the other. And that's sort of the aha that I've had in, in, the, in the writing domain in the last six months or so. I love it. I, I just love the thinking processes that you guys went through. Uh, and. Uh, Keep in mind that what that newsletter does to you is it puts pressure on you. It forces you to think, to create, to learn. Is that true? Uh, I, I, you're not kidding yourself into thinking that when you get done with the newsletter, you can put together a whole bunch of newsletters and you got a book. Because if you are, then you're really dreaming. Uh, but boy, are you keeping your mind active? Are you uh, creating the grist? for what that book is, and uh, after you have written enough in, in the direction of what the book is going to be, you're going to realize what your book should be, and I know you're going to do a much better job at promoting that book than I did uh, on mine. You guys are uh, much more uh, di native digital than you uh, accept. 
and, and it really does. Uh, the book business today is is native digital. I'm practicing this term that you taught me, so that I could uh, so that I can keep using it. Uh, but I, I do wish you a lot of luck with the book. As I say, you're going to have to use the digital techniques to promote this book because you're dealing with a lot of people that have uh, books that they would like to promote as well. Did you know there are like four million books on Amazon that you end up competing, competing with? That's uh, Talk about competition, that's hard. It's Yeah, it's a lot of books. Um, I, I don't, personally, I don't view it as competition. I think the more podcasts and books and courses and m more things that smart people are doing to help make other people smart, I think is a good thing. Uh, but anyway, let me put it on the table. If you want any help marketing your current book or you want any help or, or anything I can do to support you in a newsletter and any of your digital endeavors, uh, put, put me in coach. I'll do anything I can to support you, Marty. I, I, I truly believe that you are a, I know this is uh, going to sound however to you, but I think you're an, an American icon and frankly, you're a gift to humanity. The contribution that you've made and the way you conduct yourself in the world, you know, you are an honorable man amongst the most honorable people. And um, so, yes, I admire you as deeply as I can ad admire another person. And if I can help in any way in, the, in this regard, you let me know. Well, it's nice of you to say that. You're giving me much too much credit. I, guys like you who are actually doing something are much more impressive to me than, uh, than uh, looking in the mirror. But uh, you should keep up the good work. And uh, you say a few nice things about my book. I'll be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I loved your book. And I, I think everybody should read it. It was an honor for me to know that you read the book. And I know that you uh, read it uh, intensely enough to remember this stuff. Uh, it made, made the whole process worthwhile. I don't care if, if you're among uh, relatively few people. Uh, that uh, You made the whole process worthwhile for me, and I appreciate it. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for writing it. Um, who am I to tell you what to do? But uh, it needed to be done and it needed to be done by you. It's, it's in a very, very important piece of work. Um, cutting the cord is. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I uh, appreciate that. And, uh, and I was seriously thinking about the next version of, of that. I'll get your advice before I start. So that this time I can uh, have some uh, native digital uh, input. So I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to get even with you, Chris, <laughs> but you uh, diminish yourself when you talk about uh, characterize yourself as being a native analog. I think you're doing <laughs> really well, and you are a superb uh, interviewer. I wish I could uh, uh, be as classy as an interviewer as you are. That's so kind of you, Marty. Thank you. Now, clearly, I could talk to you forever. I do want to be respectful of your time. Are there any other things that you'd like to touch on before we wrap, Marty? No, I think we have covered a wide variety of things, haven't we? More than you expected, I suspect. But uh, I, I only encourage people to really uh, embrace the uh, concept of optimism. The things have been getting better. They are getting better. Uh, they, we are faulty in so many things that we do now, but fault is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to fix things, to make them better, uh, and not a place that we should harp on uh, with a, a negative viewpoint. 
So if there's anything that, that I hope that people will gather from our conversation, because we both uh, share this optimism uh, about the world, uh, is better now than it ever has been, but it can be a much, much better place than it is today. Let's work on that. Oh, how about that for I'm back in my preaching mode? Thank you so much for, for being so nice to me and for letting me vent off so much, Chris. Thank you, Marty. You're a living legend. Bless you. Uh, you're welcome back anytime uh, to talk about anything you want. And uh, thank you so much for your contributions to humanity and for the technology and entrepreneurial inspiration that you are to many, many generations of us in the information technology industry. Bless you, Marty. Thank you, Chris. Well, there he is, the legendary Martin Cooper. And his book is out. It's called Cutting the Cord. The Cell Phone Has Transformed Humanity. It's a great read. Time Magazine says that Marty is one of the 100 top inventors in history. And this is the first person account of the creation of the cell phone. It's called Cutting the Cord. Marty Cooper, pick it up anywhere you pick up legendary books. Now, speaking of legendary, legendary businesses are flexible, adaptable, and they invest in their success so that they can seize opportunities and minimize risks. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time for NetSuite. Stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when and how you need it. It's time to ditch that stuff and go to the cloud. Go to the cloud with NetSuite. Uh, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control you need over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and much more. Everything you need all in one place instantaneously. Check out NetSuite.com slash different today and learn how to save time and money with NetSuite at NetSuite.com slash different. And data is coming to everything and anything. Um, you're now going to not, not just hear about the Internet of Things, but the Internet of Bodies. Everything's being connected. And today, the amount of data being created over the next three years will be more than the amount of data created over the past 30. Wrap your brain around that. Digital-first businesses are materially improving humanity and digital first businesses are able to navigate crisis and confront almost anything in a way that they never could without data. Data transforms exponential possibilities into realities. And that's why data to everything has become the strategic advantage. Splunk helps you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E today. That's splunk.com slash D2E. All right. We would like to thank the good folks at Atrenet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, building legendary B2B businesses in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check them out. My friends at bottleneck.online are the leaders in distant assistance. If you need an assistant who is nowhere near you and will never get near you, <laughs> Check out bottleneck.online today. My friends at the Drop-In Coalition are helping underserved kids here in the Santa Cruz area learn about steam and the joy of surfing. Check out dropincoalition.org today. 
And uh, don't forget to go to Lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. All right, this Oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that this Oddcast was produced in a studio that does contain nuts, and it goes better with Malibu milk. Uh, Don't forget to support your local engineers. Save water and shower with a friend. Uh, Teach kids STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And if you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know you have one? Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Uh, We are produced and edited by The Goat, Jason DeFilippo. Uh, Jamie J and Sarah Knox um, do all the technical awesomeness around here. And show notes are by GM Simon. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Greg Clark, former CEO of Symantec. Sorry, Greg. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay healthy, stay safe, and until we're together again, stay legendary and follow your difference.